Welcome to 2022 Midterms, What's at Stake? A series from the Democracy Group Podcast Network that will go beyond horse race politics to look at some of the deeper issues that are critical to the health of American democracy. You'll hear from scholars and other experts from across our network of podcasts devoted to democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure that you subscribe and visit democracygroup.org for more podcasts just like it. Now let's dive into the episode. Over a week after the elections, we finally know just about all of the key results. But have no fear, dear listeners, this is not going to be one of those podcasts where Richard and I hash over the races in this state and that state and talk about what happened to the Republicans and the Democrats. Instead, we're going to lift the hood on the engine of our democracy, our election process. We're going to look at the mechanics of how we vote. Yeah. And as the former editor of Popular Mechanics magazine, this is clearly a good approach for you. So I will try and keep up. The state of our democracy after the midterms with Leila Zaydan and David Myers. I think things went really well for the most part. I mean, no election is perfect and there are going to be problems here and there. But the continued use of voting by mail and early voting has gone a long way towards making sure more people have an opportunity to vote and not have to wait in very long lines to do that. It's been tremendously exciting to see over the past few election cycles the explosion of youth civic participation, not just in this election or in 2020, but even in 2018, seeing, you know, 13, 15, 20 point bumps in youth voter turnout really is demonstrating an awakening, a political awakening. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? We had a lot of warnings and even hyperbole before the election from both sides. And now that it's over, I'm feeling somewhat relieved. Not only because my side, the Dems, did better than expected, but also because I think a kind of sense of calm has returned. You know, I would have wished for better results for conservatives, but at the same time, we did get some real pushback against the crazies in the Republican Party, and I was happy to see some of the real kind of wackos on the Republican side get knocked out, even if it it was bad for, you know, my team in a sense. So it was a pretty good election for often overlooked independent voters who split their ticket and as a result decided some really important races. Yeah, voters are smarter than they're given credit for sometimes in in the, their ability to handle some nuance. We're going to discuss more about that here from our guests, Leila Zaden and David Myers. Layla is president and CEO of the Millennial Action Project, the largest nonpartisan organization of young lawmakers in this country. And David Myers is founding executive editor at The Fulcrum, a daily online newspaper that covers the state of our democracy. We recorded our interview four days after the midterm election vote. First question to Layla Zayden. What was her takeaway from the election? I think when the dust settles, 
we're going to feel pretty good about about this election. People were were able to make their voices heard. From our perspective at Millennial Action Project, seeing so many young people turn out and participate in the system was really a big story for us. Um, something we're talking a little bit less about as a country is also the number of young people who ran for office this election cycle. And so what actually happened, right, seeing people turn out, making sure that um, election deniers did not win their races, um, and then seeing the future of our country, right, millennials and Gen Z actually participate in really significant ways. I feel really good about what happened this week. And David, how about you? Uh, I agree with Layla. I think things went really well for the most part. I mean, no election is perfect and there are going to be problems here and there. But the continued use of voting by mail and early voting has gone a long way towards making sure more people have an opportunity to vote and not have to wait in very long lines to do that. I mean, the trade-off is in some places it takes longer to count some of the votes because of systems that are in place. But for the most part, the system worked well, I think. And yet there were a lot of warnings before the election that poll watchers would try and interrupt the count, that the very essence of democracy was at stake this time, and election deniers would win races in swing states and then be in a position to run future elections. Do you think that some of those warnings were a little bit overblown? Layla? I I don't know. You could argue that those warnings motivated people to to turn out. Just because we avoided a worst case scenario doesn't mean that a worst case scenario is is still possible. And so I do think it's important to to stay vigilant and to not look at election day as a finish line, but really a starting line for how we ensure that our democracy continues to be fair and representative and transparent and functional. And I don't think this is the moment to, to sort of think, well, maybe we were worried for nothing. I think we were worried for, for probably pretty good reason. Um, and now's the opportunity to, to make sure that some of the ways in which we hope our, our institutions can be more responsive to the problems that our country faces, now is actually our opportunity to, to tackle those. David? I think there was a concern, like Layla said, uh, and the results kind of tracked the results of the the election for, for Congress and other offices and that there were predictions that it was going to be a red wave and all these election deniers were going to win. And that's not what turned out to be the case. Now, there were some election deniers who won, but by some accounts, there were over 300 of them who were running for office and the ones who were running for the positions where they could really make a difference in the legitimacy of future elections. Most of them did not win. There was a lot of talk about the economy being the top issue. In most cases, it was, and abortion was a major issue. But for many people, the state of democracy was one of the top two or three issues, and that seemed to bear out in the results. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be in the, the sort of contra the contrary, uh, more conservative member of, of our team here. I want to push back a little bit. You know, people on the right have gotten a lot of legitimate criticism for hyperventilating about election fraud. I mean, when I hear like historian Michael uh, Beschloss, he, he said, I think it was on MSNBC, we could be six days away from losing our whole rule of law, whether our children will be. And, you know, he thought it was possible that our children could be arrested and conceivably killed. I'm sorry. To me, that's a little bit like what you hear on the Trumpy side. Shouldn't both sides be dialing it down a little bit after this election? Like our system works pretty well. 
I think it's part of the the drama of any election is how people are going to uh, stoke emotion in order to drive action. And I probably would have phrased some of my calls to action a little bit differently from that. At the same time, do think that what happened in this election sets the stage for what can or cannot happen in in 2024. And so I think imagining a future in which we've totally as a country lost faith in our democratic institutions and have opened the door for um, pretty undemocratic outcomes is not science fiction. It's, it's within the realm of possibility. And to ensure that I think the American public really understands what's at stake making sure that people are are paying attention is important. Now, I think what gives me hope is I feel like people are paying attention and not only do they care about sort of the process, but we saw people turn out based on issues. And so seeing sort of where the candidate quality really matters, whether you're on the left or on the right, I think that's something that voters are are, um, maybe more aware of how their voice matters and how not participating seeds ground to outcomes that that don't align with what they need. I think what we've seen over the past few years is that there are stresses put on our democratic system, but the system seems to have held up through everything that's been launched back and forth by either side. Let's get into the mechanics a little bit of the voter fraud allegations. One thing we saw in this last cycle was there were some problems in some states, uh, delays, especially uh, in Maricopa County in Arizona, where some of the the ballot county machines didn't work properly. And of course, you saw some people seize on that as evidence of voter fraud. But it seemed to me the process was pretty transparent. Now, here's what we do when the machine doesn't work. The ballot doesn't go anywhere. We still count it. It wasn't some mysterious black box that people could say was being controlled from, you know, Venezuela or China or something. And the officials seem to have done a pretty good job of explaining the delays and pushing forward with the counting. Do you think we've learned some stuff from previous elections and maybe our election officials are a little better about just communicating what the process is and and that a temporary glitch doesn't mean that, you know, there's a secret back room where ballots are being shredded or something. There's definitely more information available for those who are willing to view the facts and listen to the evidence about how these things work. There are still going to be people who will make false claims or unfounded claims about those kinds of things. But you're absolutely right that it's not a matter of changing votes in a machine because places like Maricopa County have become very good at doing hand recounts and audits and being able to back up the numbers. The original information is there uh, all over the country to prove what the vote totals are. Does it take too long for some states to count the vote? Can that lead to confusion and even boost the arguments of those who do claim voter fraud? David? Uh, Yes, it takes a long time in some places. I don't know that I would argue that it should be done faster. Clearly, other states have shown that it can be done faster, but our system is set up to allow each state to create its own method of running elections, administering elections, and counting votes. So I'm hesitant to say that everybody should do it one way. That's when we get into arguments about federalism and states' rights. Would it ease more people's concerns if things were done faster? Probably, maybe absolutely, yes. Um, But 
I think there's a lot of value to taking your time and making sure you get it right in places where the vote totals are so close. Layla, how do younger voters see this? You have to imagine we're a generation where we can pick up our phone and order a taxi to our front door within minutes. We're used to this idea of instant gratification. So this whole process is different from what we're used to in every other aspect of our lives. I do also think that we should not sacrifice speed for the sake of accuracy. And there is a, a way to, to do both, whether that's pre-certification, pre-processing, some solutions that could modernize the uh, verification process, all sorts of ways that I think, you know, states have some some creative license to think about how they how they do it both in a way that maintains integrity in the system, but also sort of responds to the fact that we're living in 2022 and things can happen quicker than maybe they did in the the 40s and 50s. And (laughs) that's a great opportunity. Leila, are you seeing clear signs that younger voters, millennials and and, and Gen Zers uh, are playing a bigger role than in the past and are more interested in politics than perhaps younger people used to be? It's been tremendously exciting to see over the past few election cycles, the explosion of youth civic participation, not just in this election or in 2020, but even in 2018, seeing, you know, 13, 15, 20 point bumps in youth voter turnout really is demonstrating an awakening, a political awakening from a generation that in the next election cycle between Gen Z and millennials are going to hold more political, potential political power than any other generation. 30 members of Congress so far, newly elected members of Congress are millennials and one Gen Z, nearly doubling the number that we're currently in the House of Representatives. You got to be excited when you see numbers like that. We have a, a president and speaker of the House who are both uh, <laughs> nearing their ninth decade. You're saying that it's time for a new wave of, of younger people <laughs> in our democratic institutions? I'm saying there's value in having diversity in every sense of the word, including age. And currently we are overrepresented in the uh, 80 to 90 year old uh, demographic. I think I saw a tweet recently that said Chuck Grassley, who was uh, born before the invention of the chocolate chip cookie, was just reelected to a six year term. And so it's probably good to have a few people who maybe represent a younger perspective. We're about halfway through. So Richard, it's time to say. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our guests are Layla Zayden and David Myers. Before we get back to our interview, our friends at Common Ground Committee are holding a live event hours from the time that we release this podcast on Thursday. It's called Finding Common Ground, the State of Our Democracy. It's a free live event. The speakers are James Carville and Reince Priebus. It's moderated by Bob Shrum at the University of Southern California Today, Thursday, November 17th, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 Pacific. Find out details at commongroundcommittee.org. And the event will be recorded. So if you're listening to this podcast after uh, the event happened, you'll still be able to watch it. Should be both interesting and certainly with James Carville on the stage, uh, also 
entertaining. Now back to our interview. This idea of why we have 50 different processes in the different states, it can be sort of frustrating for some people. I read an op-ed the other day from someone arguing that it's too chaotic. Other countries do this much better. It's much smoother. And we should have one federal, straightforward voting process. I I don't agree with that, but I'd love your take on it, David. That's probably not going to happen anytime soon, going to a unified system. You know, we saw things like uh, HR1, the various versions of uh, For the People Act and the other legislation that came up over the last few years. And those were designed to set some national standards. But that bill ultimately didn't go anywhere. Right. It was one of three or four different bills about elections that didn't go anywhere. They all passed the House run by Democrats and failed to get through the Senate because of Republican filibusters. So there's just no appetite on the right to go along with national standards, even when we're talking about the Voting Rights Act, which had been passed and renewed regularly with uh, votes on both sides. At this point in time, even that can't happen. So I'm hard pressed to see a path forward to creating national standards for elections. Nevertheless, do you see trends such as uh, more early voting, more mail-in voting that have clearly been happening in some states in recent years? Do you see those trends continuing? Absolutely. Right. Uh, we're seeing it on the state-by-state level as you know, we started with things changing because of the pandemic and state, some states going to temporary solutions to vote by mail and many more adding uh, it permanently. We just saw in Connecticut on Election Day, the results there, they had a, a state ballot measure to allow early in-person voting, which passed, allowing the legislature to create new rules. That will leave only three states that don't have early in-person voting. So clearly more and more states on both the left and the right are adopting these practices to make it easier and more giving more options for voting. And, and Layla, is that something that you think younger people really want and expect? Yeah, I think the the key word here is choice, comparing it to the choice that we have in everything else that, that uh, we do in our lives. Voting doesn't feel like it should be different. We should be able to either go on election day or if we're in another state and can't make it on that day, mail in an absentee ballot or mail in an absentee ballot for you know any other reason. I also think that uh, just it's hard to put the toothpaste back in the tube. And now that it's become sort of culturally a part of how we do things, I don't really see that um, going away. It's much, much harder to reverse it once it's become, um, especially for people who maybe cast their first ballot as an absentee ballot or did it early to sort of um, break that habit. Well, let me let me be the person who says, what's all this toothpaste doing <laughs> all over the place? Um, <laughs> basically, there are criticisms of early voting, especially ex- very extended early voting periods, and a lot of criticisms of mail-in voting. Very few other countries rely on mail-in voting the way the U.S. has come to. By going to a more of a mail-in voting system, you're eliminating some of the the kind of ability to verify the the chain of custody of, of ballots. Should there be a limit to how much we we convert to a you know mail in system and a uh, and very lengthy 
election periods where people might be casting their votes, you know, weeks before the election date itself. And things might change. New information might come out, but their vote is is already registered or already, you know, in the in the lockbox. I understand those concerns, especially about voting well in advance of elections. Uh, and maybe there are solutions about giving opportunities to change votes or something like that. In terms of voting by mail, though, I would say that there are states that have been doing it for years and have demonstrated that it is both safe and secure by using things like barcodes and signature validation and other steps to make sure that the ballots are secure. And we're talking about states on the left and the right in the middle. You got Colorado, that's a a toss-up state. You've got conservative Utah. You've got liberal Oregon. They've all been doing this, and some of them for many, many years without any problems. Yeah, I would hope that we can depolarize the, the topic of making our system run more smoothly and in a way that gives people full confidence in it, that those discussions can be had in our state houses, in Congress, in ways that are really solutions oriented. Because I think it becomes really difficult when sort of every effort to create sort of election integrity is seen as voter suppression and any effort to expand access to the ballot box is seen as voter fraud. David, as a journalist, you cover elections and democracy at the fulcrum. Was there something that didn't get enough overall media coverage after the midterm election? There's a lot of talk about who's going to control the House and the Senate and what it means for 2024. But across the country, we saw opportunities where voters also had the chance to weigh in on how government works. So, for example, there's a system out there called ranked choice voting in which people get to rank their candidates and you make sure through an instant runoff process that the winner is always someone who gets the majority of the votes. That was on the ballot in a lot of places and in most of them it passed. So voters really seem to be interested in changing the way the system works. We're seeing moves like that, uh, not just about ranked choice voting, but other elements of the system that Voters seem really engaged on and want to find ways to making things work better. So I'm encouraged to see voters get a chance to weigh in and find ways of improving. For me, Election Day is really just the tip of the iceberg. And looking at what happened on Tuesday, I'm so excited about everything that happened to get people there, to get young people there, whether as voters or as candidates. And so I think one of the biggest lessons for me is all of the organizing and uh, dialogue and listening and um, really community building that happens in between elections. And then for voters to feel like that process is um, worthwhile enough for them to show up, cast their vote and participate in what their future looks like instead of sort of throwing their hands up and saying, whatever, everyone's the same, this isn't for me. One of my takeaways from this election is a sense I've had for a while that most voters want to drag their parties back to something a little bit more moderate, a little bit less extreme. If that's true, if if there is a large segment of the public that wants to bring things back to the center, but in a way doesn't have really very good levers to do that, are there little tweaks we could make to our process? David, you mentioned ranked choice voting. That's probably the biggest. But are there things we could do to help empower voters who want a more moderate centrist approach from their leaders? There are a couple of things that can be done. And again, all these things need to happen on a state by state level. So like we said, ranked choice voting, the other big one would be changing our primary system to open primaries 
and allowing people in the middle to participate, people who are not necessarily affiliated with the party. The way the system works now, you have a very small percentage of voters deciding who the nominees are. And in districts, especially where one party dominates, that small percentage is really deciding their representation. And you're going to end up with candidates on the far left or the far right who are virtually guaranteed of winning election. Uh, until that part of the system changes, it's going to be hard to really affect change at the general election level. Are there more moderates than we think there are, Layla? I don't know that I would call them moderates in the way that we think about moderate centrists. But I do think that there are a lot more people who are open to ideas across the ideological spectrum, good ideas, no matter where they come from, who are really loud and passionate about those ideas, but are really willing to build those coalitions and listen to people who might come from a, a different place on that spectrum. And, and I, you know, I also just want to plus one what David said about making it easier in primary elections for people who are unaffiliated or uh, independents to participate. The fastest growing political affiliation is not affiliated or, or independent. And so for young people who are just starting to have this uh, civic awakening to not even be able to participate right off the bat is pretty disappointing. One easy thing we could do is really open it up to um, give people access to make their voice heard in those ways. Layla Zayden and David Myers speaking with us on How Do We Fix It? Jim and I will have our conversation in a few moments, but first, a recommendation. Richard, you have a recommendation from a writer I like a lot. In fact, I recommended the podcast he co-hosts called Ink Stained Wretches a few weeks ago. Yes, this is Chris Steyerwalt, and the book is called Broken News, Why the Media Rage Machine Divides America and How to Fight Back. And it's a very serious topic, but the book is often entertaining. Uh, Chris is a very good writer. And Broken News gets at the roots of today's news crisis. I mean, so many people, even journalists that I know, have walked away from their daily news fix in recent years. Distrust of the media has never been higher. And Chris Dyerwalt offers some reasons why. He looks back at, at the history and how things have changed uh, for the media. For instance, thousands of reporters across the country who once covered City Hall, the Board of Education, the local budget were laid off when their newspapers either collapsed or, or certainly had to cut back on coverage. And instead of local news, we now have national opinion. And the result so often is more emotion, more anger, and less coverage of how we are governed. Yeah, and Chris brings a lovely, uh, lighthearted sensibility even to various serious topics, and I think we could use a little bit more of that in our public discourse. And next up, our take on what we just heard from Layla Zayden and uh, David Myers. Richard, we're recording this uh, about a week after the elections, and I have to say, with each day that goes by, I get more frustrated with how screwed up our process is. No other modern nation is so slow to count votes or has a system that appears to people who aren't insiders to be 
really chaotic. Doesn't mean it's full of fraud or anything like that, but certainly when you have this many moving parts, this much kind of slack in the system that it takes this long to count votes, you're raising certainly more opportunities for problems and raising more opportunities for voters to have doubts. When Democrats supported H.R. 1 and wanted to make national changes to what is a local and regional and statewide voting system, conservatives like you really pushed back and said, no, no, it's it's good to have a local system. I mean, if we're going to fix problems of, of really slow uh, vote counts, don't we have to have some guidance from Congress? No. No, no, and no. Uh, we have a federal system, uh, and and voting is a is a a state responsibility, and the states that are doing it badly have to fix it. But you might have some national baseline standards. You pass a simple law, one sentence law that says all votes have to be counted and declared within three days of the election, something like that. Right. HR one though was a. a, a a bill with enormous overreach that would have given the federal government a, a, a incredible power to uh, control how how elections are handled in individual states. And, you know, that sounds good when your party's in charge. Uh, imagine a little thought experiment. It's the second Trump administration, 2024. Do you really want them in charge of your local elections? I think our current system... It's messed up. It needs to be cleaned up. But I'm not looking for a solution from Washington. I'm looking for a solution from voters in state houses across the country. I actually kind of agree with you as, as much as it pains me to say it. Um, on, <laughs> it's, you'll get over it. You know, lie down for a while and the feeling will pass. <laughs> on, on, on a couple of other matters that were discussed, I believe that open primaries makes a lot of sense and that we need to at least reduce what is really a stranglehold by extreme voters on in both Democratic and Republican primaries. Um, if we had open primaries where independents could vote, where anybody could vote, um, that would help have many more candidates who are not necessarily moderate, but certainly don't appeal to extremes. Maybe, maybe. It adds a lot of chaos to the system and a lot of opportunity for people to game the system. I, I, I remain to be convinced. One thing I like about having our different approaches in different states is it allows states to experiment with different approaches. We've talked a lot about things like ranked choice voting. I'm agnostic about it. I think it's a really neat idea. I'd like to see how it plays out. Uh, Alaska has a ranked choice voting system. And last I checked, they were still counting the votes and, and sifting through the, <laughs> their rankings. Oh, Jim, it's so hard to drag you off the fence and get you <laughs> across the finish line. <laughs> and I think, I think that shows up such an interesting difference between you and I, not just politically, but almost psychologically, where I'm like, oh, gosh, that's an exciting reform. Let's try that. And you were like, um, no, I don't think so. I think maybe we should try it in um, Podunk, uh, Maine, but let's not go too far. Yeah, well, it's a good thing about our our federal system we've, that we can we can run these experiments at different states and see how they go. I, I'm not saying I'm universally against it, but 
I, I'm not ready to make a big change. But if you say that, you can't be too upset when it takes nine, ten days for the vote to be counted in a number of states, because the way to fix that would be minimum national standards. Here's an, what I do think is merits a, 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 a national movement, but not one that is, is written in law, in legislation from Washington, is I think we've gone way too far with mail-in voting. And, you know, we loosened a lot of standards during the pandemic. There was the assumption that, you know, people couldn't get to the polls. And I think it's corrosive of uh, towards election security. Doesn't mean there's been a lot of fraud, but it certainly makes it easier for fraud to happen. And it makes it it easier for people to feel uncomfortable or suspicious of the results. No other country has a voting system that is as kind of uh, loosey-goosey as ours has become. No other nation has so many different types of voting systems as we do, uh, so localized. I know that you're a critic of uh, extending mail-in voting, but perhaps we <laughs> that's just another part of how our election system differs from one state to the other. Some states do it very well, and, and uh, I think that's that's great. I think it's an inherently leaky, less secure system. We can tinker with it and, and make it as secure as possible, but it's never going to be as secure as people showing up at the polling place. In states where there is mail-in voting, there tends to be higher turnout, more people taking part in our democratic system than in many other states. Um, I'm in favor unless there's strong evidence that um, it's a bad idea. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Thanks for joining us. And we'll be back in two weeks with another fine show. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer, and this is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Find out more at DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to 2022 Midterms, What's at Stake? It's citizens like you who are going to make all the difference. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend. And then visit democracygroup.org to find more podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse.